Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. This episode will be Part 1 of a two-part series we'll be doing covering all the high-yield things you need to know about the newborn exam. In Part 1, we'll be doing a breakdown on several of the things you need to be aware of in the period immediately following birth, including the APGAR score, managing newborns that are born either small or large for gestational age, neonatal jaundice, and the various medications and tests that are administered to the newborn for preventive health measures. In part two, we'll be doing a head-to-toe assessment of what you may expect to come across in a typical newborn exam, with special emphasis on normal features, as well as several of the various and sometimes subtle pathologic findings which could have devastating outcomes if they are missed. As we make our way through this two-part series, Note that several of the topics we'll be touching on are super high yield and deserving of their own dedicated episodes, and in fact you'll hear me mention throughout that I will revisit these topics in future episodes very soon. If you find this material helpful, please consider subscribing as it will help to get the word out to other students who may also find it valuable. Thank you, and let's begin. The first thing you want to hear when a baby is delivered is the cry. Crying is a sign that the neonate has functional lungs and has successfully undergone a transition from breathing in amniotic fluid to being able to breathe air. If there is no cry within 30 seconds, it is time to begin neonatal resuscitation by suctioning out whatever fluid may be trapped in its airway and using positive pressure ventilation. We'll leave neonatal resuscitation there for now and we'll save that topic for a future episode when we discuss neonatal emergencies. At the one minute mark after birth, you will begin the assessment of the APGAR score. Many people believe APGAR is an acronym, but in fact it's named after Dr. Virginia APGAR, who developed the standardized method of scoring newborns based on certain characteristics present at the one minute mark after birth and the five minute mark after birth. The APGAR score is based on five components, each of which can be worth up to two points for a total possible score of ten points. The five components of the APGAR score are breathing effort, with a good cry being worth two points, heart rate, with a heart rate above 100 being worth two points, muscle tone, with active motion of the limbs being worth two points, the grimace response, with the infant grimacing or otherwise reacting vigorously in response to a pinch being worth two points, and skin color, with the entire body being pink worth two points. One point is given to a component if it is present but not optimal, such as if there is some peripheral cyanosis in the skin, which would be worth one point, and zero points are given if a component is absent altogether, such as a lack of breathing. APGAR scores are given one minute after birth 
and again at five minutes after birth. Importantly, the APGAR score is not a predictor of outcomes. Rather, it was designed to help identify newborns who require extra respiratory support or other resuscitative measures, which again we'll get into more detail on in a future episode on neonatal emergencies. After the baby is breathing spontaneously, you will next place the baby on a scale to get the birth weight. Tracking the baby's weight, length, and head circumference over time is critical as the relationship between size and age can tell a lot about the well-being of the baby, and any derangements in these values may have disastrous implications. Infants born at less than the 10th percentile for weight are said to be small for gestational age. This is not to be confused with intrauterine growth restriction, or IUGR, which is where the developing fetus fails to grow at an expected rate while in utero. Put another way, small for gestational age is an objective statement looking at just the value of the measurement, while IUGR is a statement about some sort of offense upon the developing fetus while in utero. In addition, IUGR can be further broken down into either symmetric or asymmetric IUGR in reference to the size of the head circumference when compared to the rest of the body. If the head circumference is small like the rest of the body, this is said to be symmetric IUGR. If the head circumference is normal in the setting of the birth weight being small for gestational age, this is said to be asymmetric IUGR. The way I like to think about this is to imagine the developing fetus inside the mother's womb. If you were to starve the fetus of nutrients for an extended period, the fetus would eventually adapt to conserve as much nutrients as it could to go towards the development of its brain, leading to asymmetric IUGR. This can also happen in conditions that affect the integrity of the placenta or the umbilical cord, such as maternal hypertension or substance abuse, thereby depriving the fetus of valuable nutrients. On the other hand, symmetric IUGR is when the entire body is small, including the head circumference. Causes of symmetric IUGR usually represent underlying pathologies in the fetus, such as chromosomal abnormalities or congenital infection, unlike asymmetric IUGR, which tends to be the result of maternal factors. On the other end of the spectrum, we have newborns who are large for gestational age, also known as macrosomia. The most common cause of macrosomia is when infants are born to mothers with gestational diabetes. The presence of increased glucose in mothers with gestational diabetes causes the fetus to produce more insulin, which acts as a growth hormone on the developing fetus, causing excessive body growth and increased fat deposits. A few key points to remember for infants born to mothers with gestational diabetes is the increased risk of shoulder dystocia and hypoglycemia during the first few days of life, with treatment being a source of glucose in close monitoring. Another subtle connection to newborns born to mothers with gestational diabetes is the increased risk for TTN, or transient tachypnea of the newborn, discussed in episode 5. TTN is associated here not because of diabetes, but because of the increased likelihood of planned C-sections for newborns with macrosomia, and C-sections are a major risk factor for TTN. Less common causes of newborns with large heads includes hydrocephalus and intra- or extracranial hemorrhages. 
intracranial pathologies in newborns will typically be associated with bulging fontanelles and other more typical signs of increased intracranial pressure, including fatigue, vomiting, and convulsions. But we'll discuss those in further detail in our future episode on neonatal emergencies. While we're on the topic of the baby's head, you might notice that babies born via vaginal delivery tend to have odd or cone-shaped heads. Most of the time, this is totally normal as the fissures in the skull tend to take several months to close, and passage through the birth canal tends to leave babies looking like a character from the movie Coneheads. And the treatment here is to put a cute hat over it, as most cases will resolve within a few days or weeks. Next, let's talk about normal weight loss after birth. When babies are born, they have a lot of extra fluid in them, which is usually shed within the first couple of days. For this reason, it is normal to expect a slight dip from the birth weight up to about 7-10%, to 10%, and with regular feedings every few hours, eventually the weight should come back and exceed the birth weight within the first two weeks. This leads us to the topic of failure to thrive, which is more of a clinical finding than an actual diagnosis. Although definitions vary, Failure to thrive can generally be thought of as infants or children who are below the 5th percentile for their expected weight based on their age and sex. It is usually due to insufficient calorie intake, either from neglect or food insecurity, although less commonly it can be due to underlying conditions that affect absorption of nutrients like celiac disease or cystic fibrosis. In addition, it can be associated with increased metabolism like chronic infection or congenital heart disease. Failure to thrive is not to be confused with the growth restrictions seen in certain conditions such as Down syndrome or IUGR, as these conditions follow their own specific growth charts and have their own expected rate of growth. Failure to thrive can usually be treated as an outpatient with increased caloric intake and close monitoring of their weight. However, if there is an underlying condition causing the stunted growth, then that should be addressed separately. Meconium, or the first bowel movement of the newborn, is expected within the first 24 to 48 hours, and if it is present in the amniotic fluid or takes longer than 48 hours to pass, then this is pathologic. We'll discuss meconium in further detail in a future episode, but for now just know the two main causes of delayed meconium passage, which are meconium ileus due to cystic fibrosis, or bowel dilation seen in Hirschsprung disease, often associated with Down syndrome. Shortly after birth, you may notice the newborn start to develop jaundice of the skin, sclera, and or the mucous membranes. Neonatal jaundice is the most common medical problem in the first two weeks of life, and typically will resolve on its own without any intervention. It is so common, in fact, that it is even referred to as physiologic jaundice. Physiologic jaundice of the newborn is the result of elevated levels of unconjugated bilirubin, also known as indirect hyperbilirubinemia, which could be due to a few reasons, including an increased amount of RBCs in the neonate, a higher turnover rate of RBCs early in life, and decreased clearance of bilirubin by the enzyme uridine glucuronyl transferase, or UGT, which is the enzyme needed to conjugate bilirubin in order to excrete it. Physiologic jaundice tends to first appear after 24 hours, peak at around 2 to 4 days, and then resolve completely by 2 to 3 weeks as the levels of the UGT enzyme start to ramp up and conjugate the bilirubin. If jaundice presents prior to 24 hours after birth, 
it is automatically considered pathologic. Neonatal jaundice is also considered pathologic if total serum bilirubin rises by more than 5 mg per deciliter per day or if the total serum bilirubin is greater than 17. Causes of pathologic jaundice include increased bilirubin production such as is seen in the hemolysis of RBCs. Hemolysis of RBCs can either be immune-mediated, such as is seen in ABO or RH incompatibility, or non-immune-mediated causes, such as seen in conditions like hereditary spherocytosis, G6PD deficiency, or in cases of tissue necrosis or hematomas. There can also be genetic conditions affecting bilirubin clearance, such as is seen in Krigler-Najjar syndrome types 1 and 2 and Gilbert syndrome. And very briefly, Krigler-Najjar 1 is a total absence of UGT and is the most severe, while Krigler-Najjar 2 has partial activity of UGT and tends to be less severe. Gilbert syndrome is another genetic variant of the UGT enzyme and typically won't be diagnosed until the person is in their late teens or early 20s. Babies can also develop jaundice in the days after birth if they are not consuming enough breast milk. If the baby is consuming enough breast milk but they still develop jaundice, consider the condition known as breast milk jaundice, wherein certain components contained within the mother's breast milk are thought to inhibit the baby's ability to conjugate bilirubin and tends to resolve on its own after a few weeks. Treatment of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia consists of phototherapy, which is very effective at clearing the body of bilirubin. The theory behind phototherapy is to expose the baby's skin to a special blue light which contains the right amount of energy sufficient to photoisomerize the bilirubin molecule into lumirubin, allowing the body to excrete it more easily. After discontinuing the phototherapy, there will often be a slight rebound in bilirubin levels, but it is rarely ever high enough to warrant repeat phototherapy. In severe cases of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, the second-line therapy is to perform an exchange transfusion, thereby physically removing excess bilirubin from the blood. And in cases of immune-mediated hemolysis, IVIG can be used to prevent further RBC hemolysis. If left untreated, indirect hyperbilirubinemia can develop into kernicterus, which is an irreversible encephalopathy caused by high levels of unconjugated bilirubin, usually exceeding 25 milligrams per deciliter, as the unconjugated form of bilirubin is lipid-soluble, thus able to freely cross the blood-brain barrier, unlike conjugated bilirubin, which is water-soluble. Unlike unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, conjugated hyperbilirubinemia is always pathologic in the neonate. Conjugated, or direct, hyperbilirubinemia in the newborn is often the result of impaired hepatobiliary function either from obstruction, torch infections, or certain metabolic enzyme deficiencies like galactosemia. And since we're on the topic of jaundice, I'll give honorable mentions to the conjugated hyperbilirubinemia disorders Dubin-Johnson syndrome and Roeder syndrome. Dubin-Johnson syndrome and Roeder syndrome are both characterized by jaundice and direct hyperbilirubinemia, as opposed to neonatal jaundice which is usually a, an indirect hyperbilirubinemia. Dubin-Johnson syndrome and Roeder syndrome are very similar to each other, and during my time in medical school, I would always get confused with them, as well as with a lot of other diseases which are very similar except for a few key differences. 
To combat this, whenever I came across two disorders that I would confuse all the time, I would just learn one of them, and then if I see something on the test which doesn't match up well with the one I learned, then I would just pick the other one. For example, for Rotor Syndrome and Dupin-Johnson Syndrome, I would just remember that Rotor Syndrome is the one with a black liver due to dysfunctional secretion of organic anions in the liver, causing it to build up and turn the liver black. While in my mind, Dubin-Johnson syndrome is simply the other one, with a normal colored liver. It's an imperfect method, but sometimes it can be very helpful for your exams when you're trying to narrow down the correct answer. So before moving on, let's do a brief summary of what we just talked about relating to jaundice. Neonatal jaundice is usually physiologic and resolves on its own. It becomes pathologic if the levels of unconjugated bilirubin increase by 5 units per day, if the level is greater than 17, or if there is elevated conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, which can be caused by hepatobiliary obstruction, torch infections, or metabolic deficiencies such as galactosemia. Krigler and Ajar and Gilbert syndromes can be seen in neonates and are issues revolving around the conjugation of bilirubin, whereas Dubin-Johnson and Rotor syndromes are much more rare and are disorders characterized by elevated conjugated bilirubin. Phototherapy is the first-line treatment for pathologic indirect hyperbilirubinemia, with second-line therapy being exchange transfusion, and in cases of immune-mediated hemolysis, IVIG can be used to suppress the ongoing hemolysis, while conjugated hyperbilirubinemias can be treated by addressing the underlying hepatobiliary obstruction, infection, or enzymatic deficiency. And remember the dangerous sequelae of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, which is kernicterus, an irreversible encephalopathy caused by unconjugated bilirubin depositing in the brain. Now that we covered jaundice, let's move on to some of the medications and tests that are administered to all newborns as it relates to preventive care. All newborns should get their first hepatitis B vaccine within the first day or two of delivery, and if the mom is found to be Hep B positive, then the baby should also receive Hep B immunoglobulins, as well as the vaccine. All newborns should receive erythromycin eye drops as a prophylactic against the gonorrheal eye infection known as gonococcal ophthalmia neonatorum, which can cause blindness in severe cases. All newborns should also receive a vitamin K injection at birth. Vitamin K is a critical component in the coagulation cascade that is usually derived from bacteria in our guts. However, since the GI tract is mostly sterile at birth, vitamin K is given to hold them over for a few days until they get some nice gut flora going. And do you remember the vitamin K dependent factors in the coagulation cascade? That's right, it's factors 2, 7, 9, 10, and proteins C and S. Great. Now let's move on to some screening tests for the newborn. A hearing screen is typically done for the newborn while they're still in the hospital. Common causes of neonatal deafness include torch infections, drugs and alcohol in utero, and kernicterus, which as we discussed can deposit unconjugated bilirubin in the brain including the auditory ventricular cells, which will cause a sensory neural hearing loss. Hearing screens can be done with one of two tests, 
either the Automated Auditory Brainstem Response, or AABR, or the Autoacoustic Emissions Test, or OAE. AABR detects the electrical activity of the eighth cranial nerve, while OAE measures the function of the outer hair cells, but not the nerve itself. If either of those tests fail, a referral to audiology should be made. And then there is the newborn screen, which is a blood test done within the first few days of life that screens for a variety of different congenital disorders, such as phenylketonuria, congenital hypothyroidism, hemoglobinopathies like sickle cell, galactosemia, and other inborn errors of metabolism. Each state has its own list of disorders they screen for, and the rationale is to detect and treat any of these conditions as quickly as possible, as a misdiagnosis can have disastrous consequences. And lastly, if everything is well and good, now is the time to allow the baby to bond with mom in peace. They've both had a long day, and there's no better way to wrap it up than with some tummy time and first attempts at breastfeeding. So let's do some quick practice questions and then go off to let them get their rest until we come back for part two where we'll be doing a head-to-toe assessment of the newborn with special emphasis on normal features as well as some often subtle yet ominous physical exam findings that we need to be aware of. Question one. A full-term baby boy is being evaluated in the delivery room shortly after birth. The medical student in the room assesses the APGAR score at 1 minute and again at 5 minutes, with the respective scores of 5 and 7. Which of the following is true about the baby? A. Both APGAR scores are within normal limits and no additional resuscitative efforts are indicated. B. The APGAR score at 1 minute is below the lower limit of normal, but by 5 minutes it is within normal limits. C. An additional APGAR score should be obtained at 10 minutes to rule out the need for additional resuscitative efforts. Or D, the total APGAR score alone is insufficient information to properly guide management. Answer, D, the total APGAR score alone is insufficient information to properly guide management. The APGAR score is useful in guiding management, but we would need to know more information such as the score of each of the individual components of the APGAR score. Breathing, heart rate, muscle strength, grimace, and skin color. Based on deficits in either of these categories, you would then have the information needed in order to properly guide management. And it's important to remember that APGAR scores are insufficient to predict outcomes, and that a baby with a poor score at one minute will often have a better score at five minutes. Question two. A one-day-old infant boy is being evaluated in the newborn nursery after an uneventful at-term delivery. The birth weight of the patient was at the fourth percentile for his sex and gestational age, but his head circumference is average for gestational age. Which of the following is the most likely explanation for this infant's exam findings? A. His mother had gestational diabetes. B. The gestational age was miscalculated due to inaccurate LMP and lack of first trimester ultrasound. C. The patient was born with a congenital torch infection. Or D. The mother used cocaine during her pregnancy. Answer. D. 
the mother used cocaine during her pregnancy. This newborn is small for gestational age, with a birth weight at less than the 5th percentile, yet his head circumference is average for his gestational age. This is an example of asymmetric IUGR, the cause of which is due to improper nutrition in utero, and can be seen in disorders affecting the placenta or the umbilical cord, such as cocaine use. Symmetric IUGR, on the other hand, presents as a newborn who is small for gestational age and has a proportionally small head circumference. Symmetric IUGR is primarily seen in conditions that directly affect the fetus, such as chromosomal abnormalities or torch infections. Question 3. A two-day-old baby girl is being evaluated in the newborn nursery. On the physical exam, yellowing of the skin and sclera are noted. A blood sample is drawn, revealing the following values. Total bilirubin, 13. Indirect bilirubin, 12. Direct bilirubin, 1. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. No immediate interventions are indicated and obtain another bilirubin level tomorrow. B. Initiate phototherapy. C. Initiate an exchange transfusion. Or D. Send labs for the levels of the enzyme uridine glucuronyl transferase, UGT. Answer A. No immediate interventions are indicated and obtain another bilirubin level tomorrow. This baby has a classic presentation of normal physiologic jaundice, appearing two days after birth and with a total bilirubin level below 17. No interventions are indicated as the condition will likely resolve spontaneously in the coming weeks as her body produces more of the UGT enzyme to conjugate bilirubin and process it for excretion. The next step here is to just monitor the levels of bilirubin to ensure that they don't increase by 5 or more units per day and stays below a total level of 17, in which case the condition becomes pathologic and treatment would be warranted, starting with phototherapy, then escalating therapy to exchange transfusions for severe cases in order to avoid kernicterus. Question 4. A newborn baby girl is being evaluated in the exam room with her mom one day after an uneventful delivery. The mom asks what sort of medications the baby would need for preventive measures prior to being discharged. Which of the following recommendations would be most appropriate? A. Hep B vaccine, vitamin K injection, and erythromycin eardrops. B. Hep A vaccine, a probiotic supplement, and erythromycin eye drops. C. Hep B vaccine, vitamin K injection, and erythromycin eye drops. Or D. Hep A vaccine, a probiotic supplement, and erythromycin eye drops. Answer C. Hep B vaccine, vitamin K injection, and erythromycin eye drops. In addition to the hearing screen and the newborn blood test screen, all newborns should receive their first Hep B vaccine, a vitamin K injection, and erythromycin eye drops prior to being discharged from the hospital.